0: I'm Allison Sabila, And I'm Laura Hoffman. And you're listening to the second episode of 13, 13 Years, years later. later. This is our very first time recording a podcast. Um, we're Right now, we're on the road. We're driving from San Antonio, Texas to Houston, Texas. Um, we did this exact road trip 13 years ago. That's why we titled it 13 Years Later um, when I moved to North Carolina. And... We wanted to use this podcast as an opportunity to reflect on different expectations we had, and of how our life would turn out, and like that perceived expectation, or and then how it actually, how it actually happened. What do we call it? Expectations versus reality.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that's what this podcast is all about. Um, we want to apologize in advance uh, for some road noises you might here along the way like as we go over road bumps and stuff
1: yesterday we made a pledge that we would not record on the road but we quickly realized that we are just always on the road
0: yeah we thought we'd have time um like downtime in some of the places that we stopped but it it actually does take quite a bit of time to record because we mess up so much (laughs) that it just like even if our podcast episode is only 20 minutes it takes a long time to record all the different takes because just because we say the wrong thing or, um, we, or the audio messes up. So anyway, here we are again on the road. We're sorry for lying to you. Thank you for listening. And we're each going to share a story of some sort of expectation we had earlier in our life when we were younger and how we failed, how we failed big time. And then maybe like also the lesson that we learned through that failure thank you. Okay, so this is Allison, and I'm going to start again with my story of big, big time failure, personal failure. And there were so many failures in my life to choose from that, that I was just like, wow, which one do I start with? Um, So a big, I think it's something that still stings a little bit actually, and that I feel like, wow, that really did not go as expected, and I kind of regret it, um, is when I moved to New York City in 2013, Um, so five years ago this summer, and it had always been a dream of mine to move to New York City. I went there as a kid when I was, I think, nine years old um, for my uncle and aunt's wedding, and just fell in love. I think it it was the early nineties. Um, if you're hearing road bumps again, sorry. Um, and I was a little kid and it just seemed so magical and so big and like so many things were happening. And I just was like, wow, one day I want to live here or, you know, like a big city like here. So it was like one of those little kid dreams. And Um, in 2013, I was 28 and I was managing a small retail store in a small town in California. And it was fun and I was, I was having a great time and it was in, it was a great job. It was a fair trade, um, which is like ethical imports from developing countries. It was a fair trade retail store. Really, really loved it. But I just knew that I wanted to experience a big city like kind of still while I was young in my twenties. So I applied for just one job in New York city, um, to be the sales manager for a fair trade wholesale company. Um, that was actually like a Catholic charity run by nuns and they flew me out and I looked at the products and they were kind of like, what do you think? Can you sell these? And I was like, yeah, I, well, maybe some of them, um, and they offered me a salary of $50,000. And I was like, that's great. That's great money for me at 28. Um, and I'm like managing a nonprofit, like absolutely. And so I moved out there and was so excited to live in New York City. Um, new job, new, new place. Um, and also I like before then I had broken up with a significant boyfriend. So it kind of felt like cool. Some of that emotional baggage is, is gone for, you know, feeling free. And it just quickly began to fall apart, like very quickly. It turns out that the nonprofit, the nun nonprofit was not run very well. It was run very poorly actually. Um, and any negative connotation in your head that you have about nuns, just yes to all of them. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not going to say any more about it really. Um, because I just don't want to gossip about it, but just yes, and um, and it turns out they just they really couldn't afford me, even though I I they kind of got me for a bargain. Um, so and not not only that, like I I didn't really realize like how expensive it was to live in New York City. Like if I could have just called three people, you know, and just said hey, like. What should I get paid in New York? Like how expensive is it to live? I would have quickly realized like don't ever, 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 ever move to New York with a job that pays $50,000 and you don't really have that. I mean, I did have savings to move there, but like it wasn't enough and it just, my life just, it was not, it just, and I hope it doesn't sound like first world problems. Um, maybe it does, but it, it really wasn't fun to be that Broke, just barely each month. Not pay, not really able to pay. All I mean, sometimes I would. I remember living in this apartment with. I mean, with four other people, so we split it. But we would have like six hundred dollar heating bills. It was like it would just was. I, I just I wasn't prepared for that level of adulting, and um, the they they let me go after six months because what happened was that these products were not sellable. They had not been honest with me about how much they were paying to manufacture the products. And so I got there and I was like, oh my gosh, we cannot sell these at a normal retail markup. Plus they were all like poor quality. We were having like the craziest issues where we were. it was supposed to be like a fair trade cooperative in Thailand. And instead they were like, oh, well actually they bought these at like a Chinese market, like dollar store. Yikes. It it was just so shady. It was like, you're supposed to be doing good for people. And and instead it was just like, like basically going to these Catholic parishes and like guilting people into buying stuff like that they definitely didn't need. And that was not good quality whatsoever. And it wasn't even made by these women at these cooperatives, but there's like a lot of Catholic
1: guilt yes. already present. So it kind of was a great sales tactic. It like fit right in. It was shady. It was shady.
0: And it was taking advantage of people's goodwill. And so I got let go after just six months, which was not really fair. I mean, they kind of said, we do need you to help us turn it it around, our wholesale department. And I am like thinking like, they'll give me a reasonable amount of time. But six months is not a reasonable amount of time to, to say, okay, you're out. You can't, no one can turn around a company in six months. That's not possible. And so I just didn't ask the right questions. I now know that if you work for a company and they kind of want you to save them, you need to ask how much money do you have on hand? So, you know, how much time do I have to turn this around? Like you, and it needs to be a reasonable amount. It needs to be like at least a year. Does that seem reasonable? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah I think you were kind of mesmerized by the Oh yeah, I was so
0: excited to move to New York. I was just like, hell yeah, let's do this. And it, and it really stung to, to have it fall apart and crumble that quickly. And so Laura is a career counselor. And I think you can attest to how crippling it can be to a person's self-confidence to lose a job, like, like to get let
1: go. Oh, for sure. Like a blow to the ego, a blow financially. I was proud of you though, for taking the leap because you had always wanted to live in New York. So I, you know, I saw you fail, but I also thought I was glad that you tried yeah. so that you didn't always wonder what could have been if you had moved to New York.
0: I guess. I don't... I mean,
1: I guess so, but... You didn't give up right then either.
0: I got a job after that for a tech company, like a startup, like a brand new startup. And that was also very, very hard. Um, In terms... Like, definitely maybe was too young and inexperienced to be managing so many different facets of the startup. And it and it felt like I was being asked to sell a product before it was ready to do anything significant that people might want to use it for. It was an app. Um, and so it was very frustrating. That was also six months of runway. So like, well, let's see what happens in six months. The product never became something sellable. It never became something where I could like set up people to use it. Um, and so that dissolved after six months as well. And then I took another tech startup job just as a freelance, um, person, sales, sales manager. Um, and I actually did really well and sold like 30,000 worth of product in three months. And they were like, like literally actually when they let me go, um, I used to go to CrossFit on lunch break and he said to me, um, we just don't think you're a good cultural fit. Like, we're not the kind of office that does push-ups on our lunch break. Whoa. That's literally word for word what he said to me when he let me go. It was it was just like boom, 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 like no, no, no. Oh my no. God. I am so
1: sorry. When you string together the timeline so succinctly like that, it does seem like more of a train wreck than when I was witnessing it. When I was witnessing it, I was like, that's okay. Sometimes it takes a while to get your footing in a new city, especially like a big city like New York. And I didn't realize it was quite so brutal. Wow.
0: And so when I look at like my friends that have succeeded there, this certainly doesn't apply to all of them. But many of them that do well... um, ended up taking jobs in advertising like for big advertising firms mm-hmm. and I, that just it just has never interested me to, to sell things that I don't really care about you know like I don't want to help with like a Pepsi commercial or you know or something mm-hmm. um, I just don't, I don't care and I've always had mission based work well mission based work doesn't pay very well and you know what if, it, if you don't have a job that pays very well you cannot live in New York and
1: Did you run into the same issue with different job postings asking for a master's degree? Yes,
0: that's. I'm glad you asked. That happened to me. So my dad works for this. Um, he's a mortgage. Um, he's a mortgage loan underwriter at a Dutch bank in California called Rabobank, and I asked if he could help get my resume to the corporate office in New York because. Um, they do they do agriculture they fund agriculture projects and i studied agriculture in my undergrad and so he did he gave it to someone who gave it to someone who gave, gave it to someone and they brought me in and i did like a round of interviews and they went really well and they were like yeah we want to find a spot for you here um which would have been really exciting and it was kind of like um it was an analyst position and it was like doing these kind of trend forecasts in the agriculture and food product industry so like researching like what are processed foods doing, you know, and like kind of that way guiding these investments and creating like kind of almost marketing materials for these different areas of investment. Mm -hmm. Definitely was very interested in the job. Um, And then it turned out when I found out I didn't get it, he said we ended up hiring someone with a master's degree.
1: Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) If you didn't tune in to our first episode, it was about things like career and education and right and the purpose
0: of the road trip that we're on at this moment is that I am driving to Boston to start my graduate program at Boston University to get a master of public health
1: and that is mission-based if you ask me right pretty so, mission-based I know
0: and so I want to get so to wrap up kind of to wrap up here I left New York I left with $14,000 in credit card debt That'll be, like, a whole different failure episode, to be honest. Maybe the next, maybe I'll do that in the next one. Actually, that would be really fun. I'll do that in the next one. How, Just, like, how I got the credit card debt and how I paid it off. Um, to be honest, I feel like I got out with pretty minimal, like, living expenses because I wasn't making very much. And so what I was doing was kind of just putting my... Oh, I'll save it. I'll save it. Okay. Um, so moved to Austin, Texas for another fair trade job, got back on my feet, got financially stable, got mentally stable, um, worked in just like a much better office environment with, you know, actually being able to succeed for a company that was doing like, okay. Um, but I think that I started to analyze like, like friends of mine that were doing really well and making lots of money. And I was like, well, they work in finance, they work in advertising or they work in drugs, like alcohol or pharmaceuticals. Um, You know, for example, like my brother does really well and he um, works for a wine app that sells wine. Um, And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do it. So I just decided, you know what? I'm just, I'm going to choose mission-based work because that's, we're going over some bumps here. My apologies. I want to do mission-based work. It's more important to me than having the kind of livelihood that would give me a fancy life. Um, and I wanted to help people be, you know, their best, you know, their health. So, um, decided to do, to do public health and so that I can work on issues of, um, violence and reducing violence, just very passionate about it. Um, And that's also related to the fair trade because we often help um, reduce violence against women in these developing countries. And it just, I don't know, it was just a decision like, you know what, I can't have that high roller lifestyle in New York and it's not what I want. I would rather have a simple lifestyle with a low salary and just. So that's kind of my redeeming thing in this failure was realizing like that crazy, frenetic, fast paced New York lifestyle where people are always like, let's go out for drinks and drinks are like $20. Let, did you try the, did you try the new restaurant that just opened up? Oh my God, the chef's amazing. And like all that kind of stuff. Um, I've always needing to be at the hippest bar. The hit, you know, did you try, check out the new rooftop bar? It has a pool. Did you, you know, did you go to the party? Did you meet this famous person? Did you buy the latest clothes? That's how New York is. I mean, I know that it doesn't have to be that way, but it felt that way to me and I don't like it. So it, it just leaving there helps solidify that. I would just rather not to like definitely not to put down anyone who has chosen to have a more high earning job and live that kind of life. Like that's that's for you. I'm just saying that in my journey, I realized it wasn't for me. That's it.
1: Well, that was pretty interesting. And I'm totally amazed that you can speak so calmly about what amounts to a $14,000 failure. Next episode. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Laura. Here's my segment about my failure. So when I was a little girl, one of the things that I loved so much was anything that had to do with different cultures. So when I went to the grocery store with my mom, I would rush over to the international food aisle and I would come back with strange items from faraway lands and I would say, mom, please, mom, can I please get this? And she would be like, what is this even? Because the packages would be in a foreign language. What was it even? Oh, it was like things like Asian noodles, like chocolate from Germany, like pickled items from Russia. The good stuff. Yeah. And I would like just love it. And I was obsessed with National Geographic, any documentary. I just like loved all international things. So the other thing that I remember from my childhood was that I loved reading. I was like a prolific reader. And almost as an extension of that, I was this prolific writer. I would write poems. I would write stories. I would just give them away to Laura, everybody. You're
0: my friend that if I'm like, oh, I'm reading this really good book. And you'll be like, oh,
1: I'll read it. And then you actually do. <laughs> it's the best. Your book recommendations are the best. So. <laughs> Thanks. You actually save me time. Sometimes I don't have time to like look for the next book and you just make sure that it just falls into my hands. But I'll just
0: say, I need to discuss this with someone. Please read and you do it. And I just need you to know. Thank you. It's
1: a symbiotic relationship. (laughs) So yeah, I loved international things. I loved reading. I loved writing. And that was sort of like the, the main things of my childhood. And as I went through school, It just never went away and I was so happy because when I was a senior in school I happened to be in this program called was the regional occupational program where I was trained to be a certified nurses assistant and I actually got a job a paying job in convalescent homes I took care of the elderly and I saved up my money because I had coincidentally met an international student from Germany she was amazing she looked different than us her hair was short she had bleached it blonde she actually had like um one of those chin piercing things which i thought was so brave and edgy for a senior in high school yeah because what year was this um 1997 okay and i mean i just attached myself to her and just loved 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 her and she was like you know you could come to europe you could come to Germany and I was like what because in my family nobody had ever really gone anywhere I mean I think on my dad's side on my mom's side maybe had traveled or lived in one or two states in total there was no like far-flung no international travel. no relatives internationally yeah um my mom actually was just terrified of flying and I literally do not remember once in my lifetime one of my parents flying anywhere so um I did what I knew to do in the time that was like barely the beginnings of the internet. I went to the library and I found these series of books called Let's Go and Lonely Planet. They were these travel guides. And I just like checked out as many as I could about Europe and I wrote down notes. And in that, I learned that there's something called being an au pair, which is like a nanny you live in the house. And I signed up on this website for au pairs. And I have to tell you, my mom was like absolutely terrified at the plan that I was hatching senior year. She's like, you're not really gonna do this, are you? And I'm like, oh, I am doing it. So I actually found a family who wanted me to come and live with them and I get a stipend and take care of their young daughter. And I was so excited and we chatted over the phone and we exchanged pictures. And after I graduated from high school, I got on a plane, my first plane ride ever,
0: Your first plane ride ever? Yes. I was like, I hope I'm not
1: afraid because I don't like roller coasters or, or, or Ferris wheels. (laughs) I don't have no
0: idea. Like, is it going to be a big roller coaster? Yeah. I
1: don't go up high or anything. And I was like, okay, this is not a good time to find out that I don't like to fly (laughs) and like alone and everything. Mm -hmm. It was like, okay, but it was, it was great. I wasn't afraid. And, um, actually on the plane ride, I was old enough to drink on the plane ride. I had just turned 18 and like literally that summer in August, I had turned 18 And I could have like a little mimosa on the plane. So I was already feeling pretty good. And I went to the house of my... In Germany. Yes, in Germany. And um, went to the family's house. And within one day, I realized that something was horribly wrong. Their little child, who was so cute, like a three or four month old little baby girl, she had serious medical issues. Yikes. There was like shelves of bottles of medications, prescription medications for her. She cried and cried and cried. She was like medically fragile or something like that. And I realized, you know, they thought that as a certified nurse's assistant that I was coming with some kind of medical knowledge that I did not have. Uh. I was horribly uncomfortable. I just said, I don't think this is gonna work. They really convinced me to stay. They said, we think you're homesick. And I'm like, no, I'm not homesick. I just, this is like way beyond my ability. And since they were not agreeing to let me leave, um, a few days later, I just, like, left under cover of darkness. Like, just
0: escaped, basically. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I left a note. Oh, you left a note. I did leave a note. And I just packed my bag, and I walked in the night to the nearest train station and I got on a train. Were you worried they were going to come after you? Like find you? No, no. no, Okay. I didn't want them to worry. They were a nice family. I just explained that I didn't think that they understood that I really wasn't qualified for that level of care and um, you know, that everything would be fine. And wow. Yeah. So I, I sat on the train and I waited for the train to go and it was nighttime and the train didn't go. And I was very confused. And a young man around my age came on, he was cleaning the train and I used my you know, beginner's German, and he used his beginner's English, I guess to sort out that the train would not be going anywhere else that night. That was it for the night and I was like, "Oh no, is there a maybe a hotel, a youth hostel? Um, no, it was sort of in the middle of nowhere, which is true. It was a very small little town. He managed to kind of flag over his girlfriend who had dropped him off for work for the night shift, and he offered that I could stay with her overnight because he would be working and she would be back to get him at the train station in the morning. And I thought, you know, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And thinking now as a mother, that is just horrifying, like of everything that had could go wrong. And, and I know my mom was horrified that I was kind of over there alone and her not being able to be in touch with me. Um, but you kind of, you discovered that strangers are act, like, can actually be, like really great. They were super nice. They fed me breakfast and the next morning they made sure I got on the right train and off I went. I I actually um went to visit my um friend who was the exchange student. She was back home in Germany, so I went um nearby to her town. I had I had very long hair and I chopped it. I chopped it short just like Ooh. her. Yeah, it was like shedding Rebellious. shedding the locks ready for my new European life and that's a thing. I was never planning to come back to the United States. I was planning, my plan was to live and work and possibly go to college in Europe Mm -hmm. and just never come home again. And um, I did some more traveling and I started burning through my money. And one interesting thing about my, my discomfort of being with this medically fragile child was that around that time, there was a nanny a a British nanny and I'm sorry I do not know her name right now but she actually was arrested there was a huge um, court case scandal um, where a baby died under her care and in the end she was found not guilty but it was this huge scandal and I was thinking oh my god what if that had happened to me that anyway, was in the
0: news before or after right after
1: oh right shoot. after so it was super relevant to okay, me okay got it um so eventually i ended up in ireland and i decided to get a job to supplement my dwindling savings and it was at a 50s diner in ireland in galway a very cute little college town And they wanted to hire me under the table, of course, because I fit this American theme. The theme for their restaurant. Yeah, so I was like a waitress, and I was at this youth hostel, and only a week into it, I got up, made my coffee to go to work, and there was this coil sort of stove, and it was unplugged. And the coils were all dark, and I thought, I wonder why it's unplugged. So I plugged it back in, and I just gently touched my hand with the coils to see if it was gonna begin to heat up. What I didn't know was that it had been hot. And maybe it was very recently red, just not red right at that minute. Because just barely touching my hand, this horrible, painful coil-shaped burn just, like, instantly Ouch. appeared on the palm of my hand. It was terrible. Uh, it it bubbled up. Uh, it blistered. I didn't have insurance. I'm in
0: pain for yeah, you.
1: I didn't have insurance. Um, somewhere in the mix of this, like, I lost my bank card. I had to go through a lot of rigmarole on the phone back to the States to get some kind of replacement. It was pretty scary. Um, I had to quit my job because I actually went there in good faith and you should have seen me trying to fill ketchup bottles with like this burnt bandaged hand. And, and I, I had no more money. Um, what ended up happening was I had to sell my camera that I had bought before I came to Europe in order to purchase a plane ticket home. And that last night, before my plane um, flight, I didn't even have enough money for a hotel. So I was in this little park with my sleeping bag, which you're not supposed to be there sleeping. And I found a couple of um, British schoolboys my age who had lost, I'm sorry, they had missed their last train ride home and were sort of stranded there too. And we, we kind of shared my one little sleeping bag because it was so cold and nobody could sleep because it was so cold. And we just kind of like chatted and shared stories in the night. When the train station opened to take us to the airport quite early, um, we snuck in and slept for like an hour or two in the warmth of one of the train cars before the train station sort of came to life. And um, then I, I flew home. So here is the redemption. Although my dream of just staying and living in Europe did not come true, while I was there, I met in my travels many, many college students from different countries, and they were all on vacation um, from college, and I was talking to them like, where do you go to school? What are you studying um, at- kind of adding in we were we were actually in Germany during Oktoberfest so it was kind of a big tourist draw and that's where a lot of students were and things like that and I was like wow I you know in in my high school certain students were identified as going to college and by the way I have no idea how they were identified as such but they were told sort of what classes to take so that they would be able to go to college. And I was never told that. So I think somehow I was not in the college prep identified students. To this day, I'm kind of like, that's pretty, pretty odd. It's whacked. It is whacked. So I really didn't know about college. Nobody in my family like I said in the last episode, aunts, uncles, cousins, nobody went to college. I really had no idea the difference between an associates, a bachelor's, a master's, a private school, a public school, a state university or university of California, like no understanding at all. Um, I did have two older brothers. They, they didn't go to college. So I literally learned about college from traveling in Europe and talking to college students on vacation. That's so cool. And so I, Amer- you were talking to Americans like a- Who came to party at Oktoberfest. There was a couple Americans, but mostly they were from different countries. Okay. From Europe and beyond. It was like a nice international mix of college students. But a couple were American, but very very few actually. And I was like, that's it. I was filled with resolve. I'm like, if I want to be able to come back here and live in Europe or live internationally and kind of fulfill my international dreams, I need to go to school. I need to go to college. That's the smart thing to do so I can actually afford to do this and not run out of money and have to sell my camera. So I came back to the States um, and I immediately, pretty much immediately started going to community college. So that's my big failure and my big redemption. And in the next episode, I want to link this failure um, of international living to kind of like, the next failure, um, which has to do with our time spent in Marfa, Texas. Laura,
0: thank you so much. I I had no idea that like your travels in Europe were kind of what got you like to start going to college. Mm -hmm. That's so cool. Like it was a big failure. You had way bigger dreams. You got literally physically hurt, like kind of in a big way. And you had to come back kind of feeling like dejected like I didn't do the I thought I was going to be there longer I thought I was going to do more and look I just got really hurt and I had to come back but it led you to do this really like amazing thing that really wasn't in your head before that's so cool thanks all right tune in to the next episode okay so our on the road reflection of the day is about Marfa Texas and Marfa is just, like, this little tiny town. We just looked it up. There's about 2,000 residents that who live there, um, which is pretty, pretty freaking small. The nearest city with, like, a real airport is El Paso, Texas, which is, like, a three-hour drive. And you just drive through Texas, and it's, like, flat, 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 nothing, nothing, nothing you know just southwest desert and then you get to this little tiny town um with these amazing art exhibits laura pulled up um a little blip about kind of the history of marfa as a as like an art like basically
1: like a massive art exhibit and she's she's gonna read that okay this is from artistsnetwork.com and it says that donald judd Came to Marfa. He visited in 1971, but he didn't buy property there until 1979, which coincidentally was the year I was born. So he acquired Fort D.A. Russell, a compound of decommissioned military buildings. He transformed the base into a permanent space to showcase art in a non museum setting. But what I really like is what they say next, which was my impression too of Marfa. It says, most writing about Marfa begins or ends with Donald Judd because it now seems so difficult to untangle the man from the larger story of the town. But it's a very real place that nearly 2,000 people call home. It's a town, not a hashtag.
0: Because it is, it actually has become a place where you kind of go and take these just brilliant-looking Instagram photos. Mm-hmm. Because it doesn't matter where you point your camera, it's an amazing photo. It's that. It's that. It's and sorry, we keep going over a series of bridges, and it's sorry for the background noise. Um, it's it's just that picturesque. It's like desolate um, desert kind of, but with really cool architecture and very modern, clean. But then some of the buildings are are older, like 1800s. It's, it's a nice contrast. And then just cactus everywhere, very dry. You kind of imagine maybe tumbleweeds, although we didn't see any, but just like old Western town mixed with um, beautiful modern art.
1: And there's this juxtaposition of sort of like crumbling. I love that word. Thank you. Um, so do I. Crumbling edifices and even poverty mixed with like some sort of like LA celebrity luxury and they're like side by side. And yet it doesn't make you feel uncomfortable or depressed. It's like, wow, they can actually coexist here in tiny Marfa, um, which according to this article is now deep into its fifth decade as a draw for artists. Yeah.
0: And, um, I I recommend that if anyone gets the chance to do it, it really is like super out of the way. I mean, we drove from San Diego. It was on like day two that we got there of like, you know, long, long days of driving all day. But you can also stop by Big Bend National Park, which is like another hour and a half drive from Marfa. So, so, so beautiful. So it's worth it because you can kind of hit up these cool places in one in one trip.
1: Allison and I stayed at this place called El Cosmico, a quirky, adorable little campground where they have these brightly colored um, Airstream type trailers that you can Rent and stay in. They have areas to camp. They have some teepees and they have some tent-like. Uh, I don't know what they're called. Little um, square, sort of canvasy tent things. Um, one of the things that really stands out about camping there was this just delicious smell of. Is it cedar wood or it must be cedar? It has no this idea. delicious moist cedar smell from some of the structures and.
0: It was great because it had just rained, and so um, it wasn't as hot as maybe it normally would have been. It was probably, like, mid-80s, and um, just everything had, like, a fresh rain, dirt smell. Um, it was cloudy. Really, we could go on and on. Um,
1: it was cloudy and overcast.
0: And um, and so these, like, beautiful, vast, like, s- skies just for days um, and beautiful clouds, and... Um, the art exhibit we went to see was at this barracks that Donald Judd converted um, and it was like cement structures um, kind of repeated over and over. I, I don't know. It, it doesn't sound cool, but it is really cool. It, it's abstract and, um, and, it, and it looks really beautiful like across this, this desert plain landscape.
1: We really could go on and on, which is totally not appropriate for this sort of like exit to our episode of this podcast. Yeah, we'll end it there. But um, Marfa will be back featured in the next episode because of its segue into um, yet another failure for me. (laughs) Gosh darn it, Marfa. I love you, but you triggered me.
0: Oh, triggered. Well, anyway, thank you so much for listening.